0: Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Food
2: 360 with Mark Murphy is a production of iHeartRadio.
1: I probably have written a million recipes like that in terms of sandwiches, and it's still a struggle to figure out the exact way to tell people to put the bread together. A peanut butter and jelly recipe, you'd think that's going to be easy, and that's one of the hardest.
2: Welcome to Food 360, the podcast that serves up some serious food for thought. I'm your host, Mark Murphy. Some of you may know me as a chef and a New York restaurateur. In today's episode, we're going to explore the art of cookbooks and recipe writing. That was Melissa Clark. You heard at the start of the show, she's written over 40 cookbooks and over 50 recipes a year for the New York Times. She's also collaborated with some amazing chefs out there. She's written cookbooks with Daniel Boulud. David Boulet, Claudia Fleming. She also wrote a pretty popular article about deep fried Twinkies. Melissa, thanks so much for joining me. Deep fried Twinkies, why did you do that to the world?
1: I love the fact that I can die knowing that I started the deep fried Twinkie phenomenon. I broke that story, I didn't invent the Twinkies. But I broke the story as a journalist. So this is what happened. <laughs> There's a restaurant in Brooklyn that was a chip shop. And I loved this place. I used to go and get fish and chips all the time. And they had a deep fried Twinkie on the menu. And I thought, no, I've got to do a story about this because who's ever heard of a deep fried Twinkie? And I interviewed the chip fryer and he said, well, you know, when you're in Scotland and you're frying chips, you put anything that doesn't move into the deep fryer because you're so bored because it's an overnight job. You know, people get fish and chips late at night. That's how the deep fried Mars bar became a thing in the UK. So he was in America. He was doing it here and he went to the deli and what did they have? But Twinkies, and he figured, let me try it. And it was fabulous because when you deep fry a Twinkie, the sponge cake really absorbs the oil and gets so crunchy. And then this is the best part. The cream inside vaporizes. Oh. So you don't get that creamy filling, but it imbues the entire cake. It's so good. And I wrote the article. And then all of a sudden, all of those you know um, state fairs that have the deep fried this and that on the stick got the idea. Hey. Let's put a deep-fried Twinkie on a stick. If that's my only claim to fame, I'm I'm happy.
2: So you and I have known each other for quite a while.
1: Um, how did we meet? I remember we did this article together, but we met before that.
2: We met at a dinner at the French Culinary Institute when it was called that, and it was a truffle dinner. And I think we sat next to each other. And I remember I did a truffle cream spinach with a fried oyster on it. Do you remember that dinner?
1: I do remember that dinner now. Did I like that dish? I hope I liked it, or did I say something nasty? Well,
2: I don't know if you were writing <laughs> about it. I don't So you're a third-generation Brooklynite. How would you say New York has influenced you?
1: You know, there's a Jewish New York food culture that's very much part of me and that I embrace. In fact, I'm embracing it right now. I'm doing a story on black and white cookies. So it's always part of everything I write. Bagels and lox, black and white cookies, pastrami, chicken soup, all of these things. I am made of them. I was brought up with them. But then I think about the other really big influence, and that is French cuisine, which you and I have in common. I grew up spending every single summer in France eating french food and my parents were big julia child disciples and they cooked every recipe out of her book and they'd have these dinner parties and then you know the rest of the year which was very brooklyn centric so those two things are always there
2: Et est-ce que habiter en france ça t'a, t'a donné le, le, le vouloir de, d'écrire euh, de la nourriture
1: i'm not going to speak to you in french mark oh. there's no Damn. way i'm going to speak to you in french <laughs> my french is a Abysmal. <laughs> if I'm ever in France with you, I'll speak French because when I'm there, you have to do it. Yeah. But I can't do it here. Okay. You know, going to France didn't make me want to write about food. It made me want to eat and cook food. What made me want to write about food was reading about food, was MFK Fisher, and was just having this burning desire to write and then figuring out, well, how can I do this? How can I write about the thing that I think about the most. I mean, that's the thing I think about the most. So I should write about that, right?
2: It seems to be working for you. (laughs) Who else do you look up to in the food writing world?
1: You know, there's a lot of writing about food that takes place in regular novels, and I would zero in on that. Every time I read a novel, I go to the food part of it, like Tolstoy. You know, it's like I wanted to eat a million oysters because of Anna Karenina or Don Quixote, where Sancho Panza is romancing this idea of eating bread and onions together with salt and olive oil. You know, when I start thinking, I'm like, well, OK, that doesn't sound very good on the surface. Just bread, olive oil, salt, onions. But then when you think about it, you're like, OK, this is really good bread, right? It's really good sourdough bread. You toast it or you you know, warm it over a fire and then you take, your onion, and you also put that over the fire, and so it gets juicy and kind of charred, and then you rub it on the bread, and then you pour a ton of olive oil and salt on top, and now that sounds delicious.
2: You just wrote a recipe there, but you made it so it wasn't just like bread olive oil. Right. So when you're writing cookbooks, do you think about like a novel and like, all right, I'm going to make this so sexy. Like you just described it. Like when you're writing a cookbook, do you miss that part of just being very sort of one cup of this duh, 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 and like listing the ingredients? How do you differentiate the two?
1: Yeah, it's always a struggle. It's funny. That is a constant struggle. And I have come out on the side of clarity and specificity. I want my recipes to work. So I've got to leave all that other stuff. I can't do the the sensuous stuff in there. You know, that's either in the head note or that's just when I'm having a conversation. But that can't be in the recipe because the most important thing for me is not my writing ego. It's getting people to cook delicious food.
2: That is so interesting to hear you as a writer recipe writing. It's such a beautiful thing. I mean, it's Did amazing. I just make you hungry? Uh, yes, I'm getting hungry. <laughs> we have to hurry this interview up. we are got to go for lunch. So now let's talk about when you were younger, when you were in high school and college. From what I understand, you did work in restaurants. Were you just like everybody else? I need a job. I need to pay some bills. I'm going to work in the restaurant. Or was it like, all right, I'm really into food. And did it help direct your life?
1: Both. When I was working in the kitchen, it was because I wanted to learn. But I spent most of my restaurant career working in the coat room. I was the best coat check girl.
2: (laughs) Did you go through the pockets?
1: No, but you know what I did? I would snuggle up against the minks. While you were having your dinner, I was like petting your fur coat.
2: (laughs) I I, I didn't have a fur coat. Right. I still don't have one.
1: Well, I was petting your date's fur coat. (laughs) Okay. I liked being close to the food culture, close to the kitchens, close to the chefs. I mean, I worked at an American place with Larry Forgione, and he would, like, send out food, and I would get to go and eat all this yummy stuff, and I was developing my palate. You know, Larry Forgione, I ate at his restaurant all the time, and as a coat check girl, but for people who don't know who Larry is, Larry Forgione is considered the godfather of American cuisine. He, along with Alice Waters, started the movement of, and it seems so obvious now, but just local food, local American food, during a time when all of our influences in cuisine were French. So, you know, I was the co check girl, but I learned so much from just being in that milieu. Yeah.
2: It is amazing how people just being amongst all those people, you can just sort of absorb. I'm sure you had to walk through the kitchen, you'd see the produce, you'd see the food there. It would, it just got you going, I guess, in certain sense. Oh,
1: walk through the kitchen. I would hang out in the kitchen. I would just, I mean, I would, all those line cooks, they were just like, yeah, what do you want? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like, can I try that? What's that? And they would, but I was, again, I was the baby. I was, you know, I was really young. They would feed me all those, you know, macho line cooks would just love to feed me. And it was amazing. I got to try all kinds of things. So then I ended up leaving that job because I got a job in a food magazine at that point. That also started my career in writing and magazines and journalism. So
2: so when is it that you put the food and the writing together? So you just said you, you went from co-checking into what was this first job?
1: So the first job I ever had was at a magazine called Great American Home cooking. And this was a magazine that never actually launched. It was a test food magazine from a company. I think they were in Scandinavia somewhere. And they had this bank of recipe content that they needed to have it reframed as a magazine. So they had these recipe cards in Swedish and they own the picture. And I had to create a recipe that looked just like the picture. (laughs) It was a crazy job, but they also had this magazine. So I started working for the magazine, and I was working with some of the most amazing people who had been at Food & Wine, a woman named Pamela Mitchell, another woman named Tracy Seaman, and they were crack recipe editors and food editors and they really taught me the ropes. So I learned how to edit a recipe for clarity and how to put the ingredients in the right order and all of those skills that would become so valuable.
2: So you basically learn how to write recipes on the job basically. It's sort of like me. I learned how to cook on the job. I mean you just get a job and you get thrown into it and you got to figure it out and you probably went home and go, "Uh uh-oh, none of this is work and I got to fix it later and you work twice as hard to get to where you need to be.
1: Yeah, you just say yes and then you figure it out, right?
2: I mean that's, that's the way I did it. I actually sent my whole team, my director of communications, all my chefs I sent them to a recipe writing class so the first thing was they had to write a recipe about making a peanut butter and jelly I had no idea they came back and told me how hard it was to write a recipe because if you followed the directions specifically some of them ended up with no peanut butter and jelly in the middle but the peanut butter and jelly was on the outside cuz they didn't specify you had to put the peanut butter against the jelly side when you put the sandwich together <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's so fun. Sorry. I think that's hilarious. It's,
2: but it's very funny, but I think people that never write recipes have to understand how meticulous you have to be in your description. How are you going to put the recipe together?
1: I probably have written a million recipes like that in terms of sandwiches, and it's still a struggle to figure out the exact way to tell people to put the bread together. Like, it's that's actually a peanut butter and jelly recipe. you think that's going to be easy, and that's one of the hardest.
2: It's pretty crazy. It really is. I, I mean,
1: I, I just was writing a recipe for croque masseur, as, as a matter of fact, which is a ham and cheese sandwich in France, and it's broiled. and. Just telling people how to layer the ham and the cheese and the bread, and it sounds like this is the easiest thing in the world, but just try to put it into words.
2: Yeah, I think it's very hard. I mean, I wrote a cookbook, and I obviously did not physically write the recipes. I worked with a writer, and you've done this a lot with other chefs, and to me— it was great to be able to sit down and talk to somebody who actually writes recipes and take my mind and put it on a piece of paper because for me, I think it would have been extremely difficult to be able to actually do a whole book that way. It would have, I'd still be working on it.
1: I think chefs should be chefs and writers should be writers. And the rare person who can do both, that's amazing. But what you do is so creative and specialized in its way, and then you hire a writer. I mean, it, there's nothing wrong. I think it's perfect. I think hire a specialist to do the things that you're not good at. Just in life, if you can do that, you know, if you can collaborate and work with other people, and you guys can complement each other. That's how businesses are grown. That's how creative products are put out there. I think that's how cookbooks should get written. Absolutely. I'm
2: glad you say that. It's people say, you know, if you need a plumber, hire a plumber. Don't get the electrician to do the plumber's job. It's not going to be done right. And <laughs> I think that's the same thing with cookbooks. you got to hire somebody that really knows what they're doing. The other thing that I learned when I was doing my cookbook is I couldn't test the recipes in my restaurant because the recipe in my restaurant would be completely wrong because I don't have a home stove where in a recipe it says, put it on medium. Well, I don't have medium in a restaurant. In a restaurant, I've got full blast. And then if I push it to the side, it's medium or it's slow. It's a whole different way of cooking. And people are cooking recipes out of cookbooks, mostly at home. So they have to have that home instructions, basically. And the other thing that I learned, which I thought was very interesting, was one 12-ounce can of beans. And for me, we don't have 12-ounce cans of beans in a professional kitchen. We have bags of beans that we soak overnight. So it's a whole different thing. But writing a recipe for the home cook is very different than us for professional chefs. And that's where I think it comes in very handy that people who are writing a cookbook with a cookbook writer is, is so important.
1: Exactly. Because it's a 14.5 ounce can of beans. There are no 12 ounce can of beans. I,
2: I, I got it all wrong.
1: <laughs> but I know what you're saying. <laughs>
2: So your column in the New York Times is called The Good Appetite. Is that correct? It is. So you write 65 recipes every year. Is that about right?
1: You know, I never counted, but that sounds right.
2: I mean, (laughs) how in the world do you come up? with? I got a whole bunch of questions. Where do you get the inspiration? How do you have time? Uh, Did your family want to kill you uh, with all this testing going on at home?
1: Well, I mean, the same thing for you, I'm sure. How many new dishes do you come up with on your different menus across all of the restaurants a year? It's the same thing. You start with an idea. I mean, for me, I start with, what am I hungry for? And um, unfortunately, I can't say what am I hungry for right now. I have to say, what am I going to be hungry for in two months when asparagus comes out (laughs) because I'm working ahead? But no, really, I do start from what do I want to eat? And I try very hard to keep a kitchen diary. When I say kitchen diary, I mean there's a really disgusting notepad stuffed in the drawer in my kitchen that has food all over it. And I replace them, you know, as I use them up and I keep notes on what I'm actually cooking. And those come in handy because I can look back and I can say, oh, okay, last year in asparagus season, you know how you you get into a thing and you do something. So last year's asparagus for me was all about the asparagus and the fried egg. And so I did it in these 15 different ways. And then I can look back and say, okay, well, say it's March. And right now, you know, you're looking ahead. And asparagus season is in May. And that's when you have to start thinking about it. So that's one way I get inspiration. Another way is by eating out at restaurants like yours and other people's restaurants and saying, well, what are people doing? You know, what's the thing? You know, there's always trends in restaurants. And so what are some of those trends that I can incorporate into my cooking that might be fun for people? For example, how about a red wine sauce for pasta? You know, it's something that um, I have been seeing lately, and it's not something I've ever cooked. But how can I take red wine, which I usually think of as something you'd use with meat in a braise, but how do I put that in a pasta sauce? It's not a meat sauce, you know, that's a vegetable-based sauce. And then I start thinking, well, do I cook into a syrup? Or do I, maybe I do Orzo like risotto in red wine, you know, and I just sort of start going from there. Uh, Travel is a big part of it, too, going to different countries and seeing different ingredients and getting inspired. And of course, the seasons, you know, not just I'm thinking ahead, but being in the season and seeing an ingredient that I want to play with. Quince, for example, in the middle of fall. Like I don't, you know, I've seen quince. I've sort of used it, but how do I really use it? And taking it home and playing with it, and then remembering to write it down on my notepad, and remembering that for when quince season rolls around again.
2: So you're cooking all this for the family?
1: No, I mean most of it. You know, the family will eat what the family wants to eat. You know, they're very specific. They're like, they will, they will not be my guinea pigs. When I test my recipes, I do so during the day in my kitchen. I have a recipe tester come and work with me, and we're very methodical about it. And then I will offer it to my family. But if they don't want to eat it, then, you know, I can't. My husband hates the idea that he has to. He's like, I'm not going to just eat it because you cooked it. I want to eat it because I want it. And I think that's fair.
2: That, that is fair.
1: My neighbors are psyched. I mean, I have lots of people who want to eat that food. So it never, ever goes oh, to yeah, waste.
2: That, I'm, <laughs> I'm very happy to hear that. You know, being a big supporter of uh, Share Our Strength and City yes. Harvest, the food's not going to waste oh, God, over at the no. New York Times. That's good to hear. We'll be right back after a quick break. Ready? Okay. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Welcome back to Food 360. I'm here with cookbook author and New York Times columnist, Melissa Clark. What was your biggest challenge when you were starting to write recipes?
1: Clarity. One phase that a new writer goes through is like wanting to flex your writerly muscles. And that's great and important, but save it for the head notes and the stories. And when you're writing the recipe itself, be as succinct but yet clear as possible. Don't be flowery. Don't be purple. Get that information across. Don't be funny. I mean, you can be, but it's hard. Really, what's writing on your recipe is someone else's dinner. And you don't want to disappoint them. You yep. don't want their dinner to come out wrong.
2: Well, I, I have a personal story of ruining somebody's dinner with a recipe. Oh, let's hear it. It literally was not my fault.
1: <laughs> it I never is.
2: <laughs> I got yelled at by this woman. This is years ago when I was at La Fourchette. I wrote a recipe, and all I remember is that there was a tuna recipe, and I think I was poaching it in olive oil. And I put all these aromatics in the olive oil to poach my tuna. One of the aromatics that I put in there was one star anise. Okay. And I get this call from this woman, irate that she had a dinner party and I completely ruined her dinner party because nobody could eat the tuna because it was so strong in the star anise. And I am on this phone with this woman. She's yelling at me. I'm like, I'm sorry, can you just tell me what, what did you do? And she goes, well, I didn't have star anise. So I put a Tablespoon of ground star anise. Now, one star anise floating around is going to give off a certain amount of flavor. A tablespoon of ground star anise is like amplifying it by a 1,000 or maybe 2,000. So, of course, the dinner was ruined. She interpreted it wrong.
1: How would I say that? I'm trying to think about one. Well, I mean, she was obviously in the wrong. I'm trying to think, like, if you don't know what a star anise is— one thing that comes up a lot for that particular ingredient is do I mean a whole flower or do I mean a petal
2: yeah it's it's tricky i mean that's why i want to get into the debate of why is it that in america we have not started using the metric system for cookbooks when i was a cook in paris i cooked in paris for 2 years and Everything was weighed, especially I was the pastry person for six months. If I didn't have a scale in the kitchen and I didn't know that the egg yolk weighed 55 grams and, you know, a thousand grams. And, you know, a cup doesn't make sense to me at all. I mean, you could put so much flour in a cup and push it down just a little bit or you fluff it and put it in there. You've got two totally different measurements weight wise. I don't know. It just upsets me. Obviously, you can probably hear it in my voice.
1: We're changing that at the times. Actually, we do everything with metric now for baking, especially for baking. I mean, we should probably do it across the board. But, you know, some ingredients like a unit of ingredient, like one celery stalk or one carrot, we don't weigh necessarily. We just have the unit because it's not important. And we don't want people to get hung up on the weight because it doesn't matter if your carrot is 100 grams or 125 grams. It's not important. However, it's super important in baking. And then we do put it in and we standardize all of that. And that is something that we have done at the Times. NYT Cooking has done it, I think, since 2007 or before even.
2: Well, I'm glad that people are waking up to that. That's definitely a, a good thing. In all of the years of you writing cookbooks with these very big chefs that you get to collaborate with, just hanging out with Daniel Baloud, you must have learned a million things just being with him, but writing a cookbook and sort of taking his brain and putting it into a book must have been amazing.
1: It was amazing with all of the chefs I worked with. Each one taught me lessons, I mean, for sure. It was like getting tutorials from the country's best chefs. It's amazing. But really, the thing I learned overall was that, There's no one right way to do it. You know, it's like Danielle chops his onions completely differently from the way David Boulay chops his onions. Like, really, they do it differently. And the guy, um, Andrew Feinberg from Franny's, like, he does it a whole other way. And each way is right but they each have a reason of why they chop their onions that way. So Andrew Feinberg, when he chops his onions, he'll do it root to stem, and then his slices aren't really half moons. You know, they're a little bit thicker and they're a little bit different, and he's looking for more texture and a sweeter flavor. And then sometimes if you chop an onion and you slice it really, really fine, it will melt and disappear. And then the way you cook your onion, sometimes you want the onion to caramelize, and sometimes you don't. You want it to sweat, you want it to brown. All of these little things are different, and they each have a purpose. And on the one hand, it's like, ah, you want to just pull your hair out because you're like, how are you supposed to do it? But on the other hand, it's incredibly liberating because there's no one right way to do it. They all do it differently. And to me, I was like giddy with the idea. It was so freeing for me to see this and to really take that lesson in because there's no wrong way.
2: Yeah, I, I had that lesson. I think I was probably when I started working at Le Cirque with uh, Sylvain Portier and maybe I was making the hollandaise. And he came up to me and he goes, just remember, there's a hundred ways to make this. I just need you to make it the way I want it. And that's what happens when you work for a chef. You have to do it the way they want it. You're representing their food, and I think that was very, very interesting. So when you started writing cookbooks, obviously Instagram, Facebook, and all that stuff wasn't around. When you're writing recipes for The Times, are you thinking about those other means of communicating to the world as well as just writing a recipe?
1: Now I am. I didn't (laughs) used to be. (laughs) Now you can't get away from it. And it's important, you know, it's not that I think about it when I'm writing the recipe, but when I'm conceiving the dish, you know, when I'm coming up with the idea of the dish, the first thing that doesn't pop in my head is, is it Instagrammable? But that's like soon after there, I'm like, well, what's it going to look like on Instagram? I cook a lot less things that are just brown than I used to. I think about the food styling in a way that I never thought about food styling before. And food styling is a thing that doesn't come naturally to me. You know, I'm more of a, if it tastes good, then that's where I'm coming from. But Now I have to, when I think about the dish and I'm walking it through in my head, I'm also thinking, well, how am I going to make it look beautiful?
2: I mean, I remember, this is a funny story, when I was the chef at Cellar in the Sky, they gave me all the old recipes before I started. They said, okay, these are some examples of other recipes. And I I almost died laughing with my cooks. We were reading these recipes and I was like, they put a canal of haricots vert. like they took haricots vert blanched it chopped it up basically into baby food and made Cornell's out of uh, haricots verts and i was thinking oh i am not repeating the food from the past and and it's interesting how food does evolve and of course you've probably since you're so into you know this recipe writing you see the evolution how do you, how do you feel about the evolution i think we're going in the right direction myself
1: you know we're going in the, I mean, we're going in the right direction because it's where we're going. You know, maybe canals of chopped up fine arico delicious. I wouldn't say no to that if they were like the freshest, nicest little green beans and you cut them and they were just also crisp and buttery. Um, So I think there's stuff to be learned from the past, and I I don't discount any of it. I do think that people's tastes change, you know, and what we're hungry for changes, and you have to respect that and go with that. So I think it's important to always look toward the future and always remember the past.
2: Okay, maybe you're a little bit more open-minded about the Ari Covert canals, (laughs) but one thing I do think we have in common is anchovies. You love anchovies? we all love anchovies?
1: anchovies. One
2: of my favorite ways to eat anchovies is a toasted piece of bread with a piece of butter and just an anchovy on top. Are we on the same page?
1: Agreed 100%. I ate that for dinner two nights ago. You
2: always have something in the cupboard. I and mean, You can always find a cracker and some bread and anchovies.
1: And you know, if you're really out of crackers, you can just take those anchovies and take that piece of butter and wrap the anchovy around the butter and stick a toothpick in it and eat that. That works. I do think people are closed off to anchovies because when they were kids, they had that really crappy anchovy pizza. You know in the pizzeria where they use the worst quality anchovies and they're really stinky and then somebody at the table across from you is eating it, and you smell it. So that will turn you off. You've got to buy good anchovies. Like bad anchovies are bad.
2: How about anchovy paste?
1: Yeah, that's pretty bad. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that stuff's valid.
2: Another question, and I think we talked about this. It was around Thanksgiving, I think, last year. I was talking to you. And I, I said to you, "You've been writing for the Times for many, many years. How in the world do you write about Thanksgiving again? <sighs> like, do you 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 can't go back and do the same thing you did last year, or five or seven years ago?"
1: It's the worst. Thanksgiving is the worst. I hate Thanksgiving. I mean, I really at this point, I hate Thanksgiving and I'm going to just admit it right to all your listeners and don't be mad at me. But I do it every year and it's really hard. I just want to cook Thanksgiving and I don't want to write about it anymore. (laughs) But it is it is a challenge because we need to be fresh. We need to come up with a new idea. It needs to be a big idea. There are only so many ways to reinvent turkey. I feel like I perfected my turkey in 2012. and like, that was the perfect turkey. i like, I don't, what, what am I going to do now? <laughs> you know? But yet you have to keep going back and you have to keep approaching it from a fresh perspective. And you have to bring all your creative energy behind it. And so, you know, I, like I said, I did this perfectly simple roast turkey. I think it was called the simplest roast turkey. I didn't trust it. I didn't stuff it. It was just the easiest thing you could possibly make and it was so good and so many people love this recipe because it really is easy and just delicious. But then I had to do it again and I had to do it again. So last year I did anchovy roast turkey <laughs> and that was delicious too. That you know? was good? That was great because the anchovies in it. But it is hard to, to just try to find the enthusiasm, you know, you, especially when you know, like, well, I did it. I, like, I'm like, i happy with that 2012 recipe but, but I need to keep going.
2: This is where we differ. If I come up with a good recipe that I like, I just leave it on the menu. I don't have to change it every every 12 months, which is good.
1: Well, you know, being a newspaper, we have to be new.
2: Yeah. like the news out there. (laughs) How many ways can you make a potato? I mean, you have to just keep coming up with different potato recipes.
1: Potatoes are easier than turkey.
2: Well, uh, probably easier to recipe test. I can't imagine. That 30% that your family doesn't eat, is probably before Thanksgiving when it's like, oh, mom ate another turkey. Hope the neighbors want this one because I'm not eating it. We're not even Thanksgiving yet.
1: You know, my family does get very sick. We do recipe developing for Thanksgiving in August. And July, August. So, you know, we've eaten a lot of turkeys by the time we get to November. But then we take a break. And then by November, actually, we are ready for turkey again.
2: Oh, well, that's good. Yeah. So I have a little game I want to play with you. Everybody's heard of Betty Crocker. She's been around since 1921. Needless to say, people were left heartbroken after Fortune magazine revealed in 1945 that the domestic icon was a fake. I'm going to read off some brand names, and you're going to tell me if they're real or fake. Okay. Sarah Lee. Is that a real person?
1: I don't think so. I don't know.
2: She's real. <sighs> she was a Chicago baker's daughter.
1: Okay. Chef Go Boy- Sarah Lee.
2: Chef Boyardi. No. No, nah, he's a real person. Seriously? guess <laughs> <Boyardi. laughs> That's how he would have said He was an Italian immigrant. Wow. Oscar Mayer.
1: Can possibly be.
2: He's real. German immigrant.
1: I just think everybody's fiction. I have no faith. He was
2: a butcher in Chicago in the 20th century. All right. Hold on. Wait. I have some more of these people. Okay. This is fascinating. All right. You ready? Yeah, Um, I'm ready. Famous Amos.
1: Famous Amos. Yes. Real. 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 Yes. His pictures on the package of the cookies.
2: Yes. His name was Wallace Amos. He was a talent agent at William Morris and he used to make cookies and send them to Diana Ross and Simon and Garfunkel. And everybody was telling him, you're really good at making the cookies. Go make the cookies. So in 1975, he opened his first store in L.A.
1: Wow. No, I. You see his picture on the package. I remember. Famous Amos was actually a pretty big figure in my childhood. <laughs>
2: really? Yeah. Okay. How about Keebler?
1: What the Keebler elves? Are they real? No, I think the Keebler elves are not real. They're real. Okay.
2: <laughs> Godfrey Keebler. He was a baker in Philadelphia in 1853.
1: Did he have elves?
2: It doesn't say. I didn't look <laughs> at. I didn't do that much research. Okay, Mrs. Field. Yes. You're right. I
1: just guessed. Debbie
2: Field, 1977. She opened her first bakery. Well, thank you so much for coming to see me and, and, and talking.
1: It's been talking great, food. Mark. Thank it's you for having me. Thank you.
2: Recipe writing and cookbooks. I got to say, I thought that was interesting. I hope you did too. I want to thank my guest, Melissa Clark, for being here today. See you soon. Food 360 is a production of iHeartRadio, and I'm your host, Mark Murphy. A very special thanks to Emily Carpin, my Director of Communications, and producers Nikki Itor and Christina Everett. Mixing and music by Anna Stumpf and recording help from Julian Weller and Jacopo Benzo. Thank you to Ann Macaluso and Kara Weisenstein for handling research. Food 360 is executive produced by Mengesh Hetikador. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.